Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including anything to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest developments in terms of potential new treatments for mental illness and new insights into their causes. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment as well as trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues. And welcome back again. Appreciate your joining me for another hour of mental health news. This has been pre-recorded for airing on June 24th, 2015. And uh, hope that uh, you had a good Father's Day this past weekend. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, again, I have to lead this week's show with uh, another mass shooting. And, uh, you know, again, I, I, I hesitate to always lead the show with something negative, but if I'm saying this is a podcast about mental health issues and current events, then I certainly can't ignore things that happen, even if they're terribly, terribly tragic and devastatingly uh, horrific in their scope of their effects. And such is the case with the Charleston church shooting. In the case of the perpetrator here, uh, at least at the time I recorded this podcast, other than possibly drug addiction, there really are not any mental health issues per se. There's no way to classify small-mindedness and ignorant bigotry and blind hate as a mental illness. Um, so what we're going to examine then is just, you know, what can we say is going on inside the minds of these hate crime perpetrators who are surprisingly young for the most part. The details of the shooting at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina are still emerging, but what we do know already is quite chilling. The 21-year-old suspect, Dylan Storm Roof, entered the church during a prayer meeting, Bible study, just after 8 p.m. a week ago last Wednesday. He asked for Reverend Clemente Pinckney and sat quietly next to the pastor for nearly an hour before opening fire. Talk about cold, calculating, premeditated. Quite chilling indeed. 
He reloaded five times. He said he was there to, quote, to kill black people. I have to do it. You rape our women and you're taking over our country and you have to go. He killed nine people, six women and three men. Only three inside the church survived, two unharmed. The more details authorities uncover about the young Roof, who was reportedly cooperative when authorities picked him up 200 miles away from Charleston the next morning, the more he appears to fit the profile of many other hate crime perpetrators. A young man under the age of 25 with deeply held beliefs and disturbing motivations. It certainly begs the question, where do young men like this learn so much hate when they haven't lived through a time of slavery? They haven't lived through a time of Jim Crow laws. They haven't lived through a time of blatant and obvious racial discrimination like being forced to sit in the back of the bus, being forced to use different water fountains and bathrooms. Well, hate alone is not a crime, and as I said before, nor is it a mental illness. However, a crime such as murder, arson, or vandalism on the basis of prejudice is considered hate crime. Congress has defined it as a, quote, criminal offense against a person or property motivated in whole or in part by an offender's bias against a race, religion, disability, ethnic origin, or sexual orientation. Data suggests that 50% of those who commit hate crimes are under 25. They are also frequently male. Roof, if it is, <clears throat> well, uh, comparing him with other such uh, perpetrators, Russell Henderson and Aaron McKinney. They were 21 and 22 years old, respectively, when they stood trial for murdering Matthew Shepard, a gay man from Wyoming, and that happened in 1998. In 2012, Daryl Dedman, 19 years old, John A. Rice, 18 years old, and Dylan Butler, 20 years old, all pled guilty to killing a 47-year-old African-American man, James Anderson, in Mississippi. There are several reasons, according to Robert J. Sternberg, Ph.D., a professor of human development at Cornell University and editor of The Psychology of Hate, Young men are more available to commit hate crimes as they're less likely to have been incarcerated already. 
and they're often looking to make a name for themselves. In the Charleston shooting, one victim was told by the shooter that she would be left unharmed in order to spread the word. Her life was spared and she was told, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to spare you so you can tell them what happened. Young men are more testosterone driven, according to Dr. Sternberg, and can sometimes displace their anger. They are young enough to have a false sense of themselves. In particular, they believe they are omnipotent. They can do whatever they want and that they're invulnerable and they can get away with it without consequences because they are, they consider themselves rather too smart to get caught. Plus, the brain is not fully developed until roughly age 25, which also factors in the element of youth that, according to Dr. Herbert Nyberg, an associate professor in the Department of Law and Justice Policy Studies at Mitchell College in New London, Connecticut. He says, the adolescent brain is more susceptible to impulsivity, spontaneity, and acting before you think. The perpetrators also often tend to be really alienated and peripheralized. They see themselves as not accepted <clears throat> and therefore not wanted. While there's no sign that Ruth was bullied or an extreme outcast in high school, one of his classmates did say he was kind of wild, spouting racial slurs and engaging in attention-seeking behaviors such as pill-popping. Yet another one of his high school peers said he went largely unnoticed. Dr. Nieberg says that hate crimes are obviously not drug-motivated, as so many crimes are, and so maybe the substance abuse is not uh, directly related, and they're not simply mass killings or someone murdering pu for purely psychological reasons, such as was the case in the Newtown, Connecticut massacre and the movie theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado, both in 2012. A hate crime tends to culminate from an existential dilemma, especially for young perpetrators. They don't like the world and they see it as a messed up place. Perpetrators are confusedly disturbed, creating a story about the vile nature of the target. The story they create for themselves might be that the target is subhuman, insect-like, reptilian, defilers of purity, destroyers of civilization, or whatever. To anyone looking in, hate crimes are heinous acts of nonsensical violence. Dr. Sternberg adds that the storyline the perpetrator has concocted is ridiculous on its face, but not to the believer. 
Therefore, most crimes of this nature are the perfect storm stemming from triangular motives. There's a negation of intimacy, there's passion, and there's commitment. Viewing the targets as less than human, as vile, as even beneath contempt, the perpetrator comes to believe that the targets are getting what they deserve. And he believes in the inherent awfulness of the targets. He or she, usually he, feels highly motivated to act on his feelings of rage and anger. Well, we'll continue our thoughts on the mind of hate crime perpetrators after this commercial break. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're looking inside the mind of the hate crime murderers that all tend to be young men in the wake of the Charleston church shooting. Now, the another element in these crimes is there's a deeply rooted belief in the rightness of their cause. The perpetrator is very committed to his belief. It's not just something he thought of on the spur of the moment, but rather something he has come to believe and hold over time with conviction. Roof's Facebook page has been examined for any possible clues. Uh, A few telling details have emerged in images. In one photo, he is wearing a coat 
adorned with two flags representing times of apartheid in South Africa and Rhodesia, which at different times in the past were severely repressive regimes in terms of their treatment of uh, black people. In another photo, the suspect is shown sitting atop his car, which has an ornamental license plate depicting a Confederate flag. Ultimately, hate crimes are complex tragedies, the result of long-held misguided convictions and internal struggles colliding with a moment of impulsivity. Every criminal has a story, a play, or a novel their life is adhering to. In young people, in the case like this, it's one of alienation. So there's this perfect storm, I guess, if you will, of uh, young alienated men who have impulsivity and impaired judgment due to the fact that the brain doesn't completely uh, complete its growth and mature until age 25. And uh, it's no coincidence that car insurance rates are so high for young men until that age. And there's this hate-filled ideology, which unfortunately is still out there, uh, because as a free country, a free democracy, we certainly have freedom of speech. And as long as it stops short of making threats against someone, uh, that includes hateful speech. But there's never an excuse for hate crime. There are only unfortunate reasons we can trace after the fact. Sadly, until the darkest parts of society change, it's the victims who will continue to be caught in the crossfire, quite literally. <clears throat> and speaking of crossfire, again, this is violence that was committed with a firearm, which in and of itself raises a whole lot of other issues. Uh, again, we don't have any information to substantiate a history of mental illness that would perhaps have precluded this young man from being able to have a firearm, although we do know it was a birthday present from his parents. But as I've said before, unfortunately too many times on this podcast because there are too many of these mass shootings, as a nation since we cling to and value our Second Amendment rights so strongly. The only potential solution to situations like this and how we could possibly prevent them is to have more security. We either have to accept the fact that anytime we go out in a public place, we risk having our lives taken needlessly and senselessly by either someone who is frankly mentally ill or someone who just has a blind hatred and commits random act of violence. Or uh, the other choice is to 
increase the level of security or put security in place where there is none in public places. As distasteful as that might be, that would include churches, synagogues, mosques, any other house of worship you can think of, malls, movie theaters, restaurants, uh, quite frankly, um, until and unless things drastically change about how we value our access to guns and our system of mental health evaluation and treatment, which makes it too difficult for the very, very few who are violently, violent and mentally ill to get help, uh, I see no other way around it. Well, you know, I really am tired of having to discuss issues like this on this podcast, but uh, unfortunately, as I've said before, uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to stop anytime soon. The attention now turns to the mental health of the victims' families and... um, you know, we hope that they will uh, somehow find a way to uh, survive this tragedy and move on with their lives. <clears throat> Moving on to much, much more mundane mental health related issues that I found that could be interesting to talk to you about. This Next headline caught my eye. Sitting down for too long may increase anxiety. Now, there's certainly been any number of research studies up until now uh, that delineate how sitting is pretty much toxic. Um, It has very negative health effects. But when I saw that sitting down may increase anxiety... That seemed rather odd, rather counterintuitive, and my first thought was, well, did the researchers who came up with this conclusion look at all the angles? And is it possible that instead it's those who are anxious, who somehow become paralyzed by their anxiety and wind up sitting for too long because they're too anxious to get up and go do something else? So let's take a look at what the researchers found and see if they examined that angle. People who spend too much time sitting down, be it during a daily commute or in front of a computer or TV, may be at increased risk for anxiety, according to this new review. Researchers uh, did a review of nine studies. It wasn't actually their own new research, the studies assessed people's anxiety levels as well as their sedentary behavior, adding up how much time people spent doing activities like watching TV, working at a computer, and playing video games. When examined together, the studies showed what researchers called moderate evidence that increased sedentary behavior 
is associated with higher anxiety risk. <clears throat> the researchers wrote that in the review that was published online on June 18 in the journal BMC Public Health. Understanding the factors that may increase people's anxiety may help healthcare providers develop strategies that people could use to decrease and manage their anxiety. It is important that we understand the behavioral factors that may be linked to anxiety in order to be able to develop evidence-based strategies in preventing and managing anxiety. Studies have linked sedentary behavior with other health problems. Remember before I was saying sitting has found to be something that is toxic, including increased risks of obesity, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and osteoporosis. You see splashy headlines about articles about this saying sitting eight hours a day will kill you. Well, there is much less research looking at how too much sitting might affect mental health. Anxiety affects more than 27 million people worldwide. In the United States, 18.1% of people suffer from an anxiety disorder yearly, according to the National Institute of Mental Health. Now, in this review, the researchers looked at these nine studies that were published between 1990 and 2014 that assessed both sedentariness and anxiety levels. The studies varied in size, including anywhere from about 200 to more than 13,000 participants. Two of the nine looked at children and adolescents and the other seven studies included surveys from adults. The studies looked at people's risk of having a clinical anxiety disorder or having symptoms of anxiety. People with anxiety have excessive and persistent but often unrealistic worries that can get in the way of everyday life. Symptoms may include a pounding heart, difficulty breathing, an upset stomach, muscle tension, sweating, and feeling faint or shaky. Five of the nine studies found that increased sedentary behavior was linked with an increased risk of anxiety. However, the researchers found different results when they separated sitting time from screen time. Four of the studies showed that total sitting time was associated with increased anxiety risk. But the data linking people's risk of anxiety to how much time they spent looking at screens, such as TV and computer use, was not as strong. Well, we have to take another commercial break at this point. When we come back, we'll take uh, a more detailed look at the researchers' findings. And we'll have other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. 
But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about researchers who claim to have found accumulated evidence that sitting down for too long may increase anxiety. So right before the break, we were talking about how they found that total time spent sitting was associated with increased risk of anxiety, but they didn't find such a strong link between how much time you spend sitting in front of a screen, in other words, TV, smartphone, computer, and risk of anxiety. However, the studies also showed that people's anxiety levels differed depending on the tasks they were doing when they were sitting. For example, a 2014 study showed that the amount of time spent sitting during a commute and overall sitting time were linked with increased anxiety risk. I guess you're talking about sitting in traffic. But that the amount of time spent sitting down for work or leisure activities had no link at all to anxiety. It's unclear how sedentary behavior might increase people's risk of anxiety. Of course, that was my main question. If this is what they find, how do they account for it? But the researchers floated several ideas. Sedentary behavior may cause disturbances in sleep patterns, poor metabolic health, and even social withdrawal. When, for example, a person sits in front of a screen instead of interacting with people, all of these effects may cause anxiety risk to rise. And, of course, they conclude that more work is needed to investigate the link 
between anxiety, risk, and sedentary behavior? Of course it is. Well, I guess my answer is they didn't delineate enough of the angles uh, that uh, could account for this link. For example, the sedentary behavior causing disturbances in sleep patterns. The only way I see that happening is if someone is sitting so long that they kind of drift off to sleep. In that case, if someone's taking naps during the day, especially late in the day, then yes, that is going to disturb their sleep pattern. Certainly, being sedentary too much will be linked with poor metabolic health. But the link between sitting too much and social withdrawal, um, at least in the article about this research, they're ignoring that that problem could go the other way. If you're socially anxious and withdrawn, then you're more likely to just be sitting and sitting alone. And, you know, so it may be the problem is going in the other direction. Uh, and therefore, I think, again, the researchers missed the boat in terms of looking at the risk of sedentary behavior increasing anxiety when, in fact, those with high levels of anxiety may be at more risk for being sedentary. Bottom line is, no matter what your level of anxiety, getting up and moving will be very, very helpful for you, not just to stave off the potential physical consequences that we talked about, like obesity, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and osteoporosis, but guess what? It will also serve to improve mental health, including reducing anxiety and also reducing depression. So there you have it. Well, moving on to our next topic on psychiatry today. If you can't sleep, you should start talking. That is the headline on an article that uh, talks about yet another study, because this is not the first one, showing that cognitive behavioral therapy is an effective technique in treating those who suffer from insomnia. So it's the article starts, it's 2 a.m., you're still tossing and turning. So out of total desperation and sheer exhaustion, you head to the medicine cabinet to pop a couple of sleeping pills, which may help you doze off, yet can leave behind a handful of side effects like headache, muscle aches, and daytime sleepiness. And if it's the wrong type of sleeping pills, like Ambien or Lunesta or other drugs like them, Restoril, it can also, with regular use, increase your risk of death. It can increase your risk of permanent damage to functions like attention and memory, leading to dementia-like symptoms. Well, <clears throat> here is the good news. An evidence review published in the latest edition of the journal Annals of Internal Medicine 
states that there is a more effective drug-free solution to chronic insomnia, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. According to the National Sleep Foundation, nearly 50% of Americans report insomnia occasionally, with 22% stating they deal with insomnia every or almost every night. And while clinical chronic insomnia has been linked to a number of other health conditions, such as depression and type 2 diabetes, the study authors have discovered that CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a form of psychotherapy that is used in order to change dysfunctional thinking or behavioral patterns, and uh, that would include being very anxious at night about not being able to fall asleep, and then, of course, because of that, not being able to fall asleep. This can target the main culprit in being awake throughout the night, the anxiety. Now, after examining 20 published studies that tested the effectiveness of CBT as a possible treatment for adults with chronic insomnia who were not diagnosed with other medical causes of insomnia, they've concluded that this method encouraged patients to fall asleep about 20 minutes sooner, along with reducing the length of time awake after falling asleep by almost 30 minutes and improving sleep efficiency by nearly 10%. The sleep-based techniques for CBT involves five different components, which include changing one's attitudes about sleep, strengthening the bed-sleep relationship, following time limits and restrictions in bed, recommendations for sleep hygiene and a better sleep environment, and practicing relaxation techniques. A trained therapist can offer sessions on CVT, and benefits can usually be seen in about 12 weeks according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Now, the key there is a trained therapist. Not every therapist that you're going to call up and schedule an appointment with will be trained in CBT at all, much less have specific training in using CBT to treat insomnia. You'll have to do your homework and ask a lot of questions to vet the credentials and training of a therapist that you see if you're seeking this kind of help. It is highly specific, highly specialized, and you're not just going to find it anywhere. Uh, someone who's had this type of training will have specific certification, uh, including documentation of said certification uh, so that's what you have to be looking for. Now, so here are the five core techniques of cognitive behavioral therapy for treating insomnia that um, you can start implementing yourself even without the help of a therapist. 
The first is avoid spending too long in bed. Often, if people are having trouble with sleep, they go to bed earlier or lie in later to create more opportunity for sleep. However, this just results in more time awake in bed, and that's not going to help. It's actually going to make your anxiety about not sleeping even worse. The second, <clears throat> get up the same time every day. Keeping a regular arising time helps synchronize the body clock, and also helps sleep become more predictable. It also reduces the internal negotiation that can occur during the night if the arising time is dependent on what sleep has been like on any given night. <clears throat> Keeping regular bed and wake times helps keep your body clock in a good rhythm and helps promote better sleep. The third is not to go to bed unless you're sleepy. Now this seems fairly obvious, but many times people go to sleep at a particular time by habit or because of a desire to get a certain amount of sleep. But if you're not sleepy enough, this approach can backfire because you're expecting sleep to come before it should arrive and that will only add to your anxiety. So therefore, there are exceptions to the notion of keeping a regular bedtime if you just simply aren't sleepy enough. And the fourth one is get out of bed only if you're awake during the middle of the night for more than 15 minutes. It's okay to do something else until you feel sleepy again, but lying in bed for long periods awake can increase the sense of frustration around sleep. So again, if it's more than 15 minutes, it's okay to get up and do other things. And lastly, and this is easier said than done, leave your worries at the bedroom door. Make sure you close out your day by ensuring you have some time to wind down before bedtime. And that includes shut off your computer. Doing work-related activities right up until getting into bed can make it hard to get sleep or result in you waking during the night. So shut off the screens, have some buffer with some wind down relaxation time, that makes for better sleep, and don't bring work at home at night. Easier said than done for some people, I know. All right, quickly, we're gonna wrap up this segment. Got a commercial break coming up. We'll be back with more after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. 
Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Now, this next subject on tonight's podcast is a surprising new finding about trichotillomania. You may not have heard of trichotillomania. Uh, This is a lesser-known psychiatric syndrome, which has to do with compulsive hair-pulling. And uh, it's rather a long word, difficult to pronounce, but it's a very devastating problem. Uh, People with trichotillomania tend to try to hide it from others. Uh, They tend not to seek help for it uh, because they're embarrassed about it. But apparently this uh, latest study endeavors to get to the bottom of why people bite their nails or pull on their hair or pick at their skin. Uh, So there are a bunch of related syndromes, uh, not just the hair pulling. But we tend to think of these compulsive behaviors, such as hair pulling or nail biting or skin picking, as coping mechanisms used to deal with stressful situations. But new research suggests there could be more behind these habits than we think. The study was published in a recent issue of the Journal of Behavior Therapy and Experimental Psychiatry, and it looked at a group of 24 people dealing with these body-focused repetitive behaviors. Compared to 23 control participants, those in the body-focused repetitive behavior group reported a much greater urge to engage in nail-biting, hair-pulling, and skin-picking in a variety of scenarios, including situations designed to create feelings of frustration, boredom, and impatience. These feelings aren't traditionally thought of as triggers for these types of compulsive behaviors. From here, the researchers conclude that these compulsive behaviors have a common root, perfectionism. 
which makes it difficult for people dealing with them to relax and do things at a normal pace. These people may be extra prone to boredom and frustration in addition to stress and therefore engage in these types of behaviors. The most recent version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, the DSM-5, that is uh, sort of the big book compilation of all the descriptions of different psychiatric illnesses, categorizes nail-biting, hair-pulling, which again is called trichotillomania, and skin-picking, which is called dermotillomania, as being related to obsessive-compulsive disorder. This is distinct from impulse control disorders, which are often characterized by urges to harm oneself. Now, these behaviors used to be categorized under impulse control disorders, uh, but recategorizing them under obsessive-compulsive type disorders uh, is uh, definitely thought of as a, a correction or a reform in the uh, way these disorders are categorized. It is estimated that about 1 to 3 percent of the United States population struggles with hair pulling and up to about 5 percent deals with skin picking, while nail biting is thought to be more common. The classification of nail-biting in particular has been somewhat controversial, with many people seeing it as simply a bad habit. Although this is likely true for some, for others it may be one version of a disorder with serious consequences. Now, <clears throat> I do think that these are more than just bad habits. People with severe trichotillomania have bald patches on their head from pulling hair out of their head. They have to wear hats or wigs. They may completely pull out their eyebrows and have to basically color them in with eyebrow pencil. They may completely take out all of their eyelashes and have to wear false ones. Um, it can be very, very devastating and lead to serious uh, social and occupational consequences. Uh, so lest anyone think that uh, those things are just bad habits, it is a very serious problem for which there are no specific direct treatments. Cognitive behavioral therapy would also be recommended. And, you know, some people can dismiss nail-biting, like, okay, well, there go those psychiatrists again wanting to medicalize uh, a habit that so many people do but if it's so bad that people's fingertips are bleeding and cracking and becoming infected then I think when something reaches that type of threshold uh, it definitely warrants more attention and has to be thought of as more than just simply a, a bad habit and next up on tonight's podcast, we turn our attention to the problem of postpartum depression. A new study shows that just simply telephone support 
can help ease the symptoms of postpartum depression. A small study suggests this, offering an option for mothers who are unable to or perhaps unwilling to seek therapy in person. Now, I personally am quite wary of any therapy done over phone uh, or computer. Uh, ideally, therapy needs to be person-to-person -person, uh, with the client in the therapist's office. However, uh, I well know there are many, many obstacles to people accessing psychotherapy. So if this helps bring the treatment to more people who could otherwise not access it, then of course I'm all for that. So in this study, women with postpartum depression received telephone counseling <clears throat> from other women who had previously suffered from the disorder and recovered. The new moms found that the conversations helped relieve symptoms. So in this case, they're not on the phone with a therapist. They're on the phone with other moms who've suffered the th same thing, gone through what that person's dealing with, and gotten through it. So it's like an on-the-phone support group instead of a live support group or an online chat type support group. Now, postpartum depression is a problem for one in seven women, and many of them don't get help because there's a stigma and they don't have time and it's expensive. Training peer counselors to do phone counseling is an effective, low-cost, and non-stigmatizing way for new moms to get the help they need. Particularly for first-time mothers, Postpartum depression can be hard to distinguish from the stress and fatigue that come with caring for a new infant around the clock. Symptoms can include sadness, insomnia, difficulty concentrating in making decisions, feelings of shame or guilt, as well as difficulty bonding with the baby or thoughts about harming themselves or harming the baby. It's important to make the distinction between these thoughts that a woman would never act on and uh, thoughts that a woman finds ego-alien or, or uh, not something they would ever consider and disturbing compared to postpartum psychosis, where sadly uh, women have been well known to harm the baby based on psychotic or delusional thinking. To assess the effectiveness of phone counseling for easing these symptoms, Researchers identified 64 mothers with symptoms of major depression within 24 months after delivery and offered them up to 12 weekly peer support calls. The average mom with depression was about 26 years old. Most had symptoms of depression before they got pregnant, and many had previously been treated with medication or professional counseling. The women who volunteered as peer counselors attended an eight-hour training course and received reference materials about postpartum depression. They also had nurses available for phone consults if they had concerns about anything the moms said during their conversations. By midway through the study, 37 new moms had received at least one call from a peer counselor. On average, the women spoke more than eight times, and the calls typically lasted about 38 minutes. This was reported 
in the Journal of Advanced Nursing. Now, over the second half of the study, 34 mothers had at least one phone conversation with a peer counselor. On average, they spoke about three times. Mothers who left the study said they no longer needed support or sought counseling from mental health professionals or didn't have time for the phone calls. While all of the mothers were depressed at the start of the study, at midpoint, only 32% were at risk for depression, and this declined to 15% at the end. Furthermore, at midpoint, 60% of the mothers had low depression scores. This percentage rose to 75% at the end. Even though the small study had several women drop out and lacked a control group of moms who received different treatment, the results are consistent with previous research that, has, that proves that peer counseling can work. It's a very powerful experience to be able to talk to a woman who has gone through the same thing come out the other side. A lot of first-time moms wonder what's normal, what's depression, and what to do with the fact that they feel overwhelmed and alone and like their experience looks nothing like the happy moms they see smiling in all the baby food and diaper commercials. Because postpartum depression is the most common complication of childbirth, it makes sense to explore peer counseling and other interventions that can reach women in rural or suburban areas where access to mental health professionals may be limited. I like the fact that the peer counselors had to go through a training class and that there were uh, qualified nurses as backup if they heard anything seriously wrong. Well, that's it for tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.